Let us turn now in the Word of God to a scripture reading which is found in 1 Corinthians and the 11th chapter, the epistle to the Corinthians and the 11th chapter, and we read verses 1 to the verse 16. This is the word of the Lord. Let us hear together God's precious, infallible, inerrant, and sacred word. The Lord helping us as we come to his word this night. May we listen in a way that is worship. The Lord granting us faith to receive his word. Be followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the ordinances as I delivered them to you. But I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ and the head of the woman is the man and the head of Christ is God. Every, every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonoureth his head. But every woman that prayeth or prophesieth with her head uncovered dishonoureth her head. For that is even all one, as if she were shaven. For if the woman be not covered, let her also be shorn. But if it be a shame for a woman to be shorn or shaven, let her be covered. For a man, indeed, ought not to cover his head, for as much as he is the image and the glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For the man is not of the woman, but the woman of the man. Neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. For this cause ought the woman to have power on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, neither is the man without the woman, neither the woman without the man in the Lord. For as the woman is of the man, even so is the man also by the woman, but all things of God. Judge in yourselves. Is it comely that a woman pray unto God uncovered? Doth not even nature itself teach you that if a man have long hair, it is a shame unto him? But if a woman have long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given her for a covering. But if any man seem to be contentious, we have no such custom neither the churches of God. Amen. So reads God's infallible, inerrant, and sacred word, and may the Lord add his own blessing to that public reading of his precious word. Let us seek the Lord this night in prayer. Let us draw near by faith. Well, dear friends, I would ask you now to please turn your prayerful attention, dear congregation, to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We commence a new chapter this evening in this epistle that we've been going through for a good number of months now. We've been studying line upon line, precept upon precept through, and we come now to verse 1 to the verse 16 this evening, and with the Lord's help we want to consider these verses that are before us. And I remind you that what Paul says here when he says, Be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. And then he says, Now I praise you, brethren, that ye remember me in all things and keep the ordinances as I delivered them to you. Now remember, look at the verse 23. He says, For I received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you. He speaks here about the ordinances, and he received instruction from Christ. But everything, really, that he is writing in this epistle is the inspired word of God. What Paul is writing here when he says 
to keep the ordinances even as he delivered them. He says, in effect, you must remember the word of God. Seek to keep it. Seek to remind yourselves of it. We are to daily read the scriptures and often we can forget things that we have learnt, can't we? It's so easy to do that. We've learnt and then we fail to put into practice or perhaps we let things lapse. He says to keep, verse 2, the ordinances as I delivered them to you. In other words, no wavering on these ordinances. Now, he has been speaking in the previous chapter, hasn't he? He touched on the subject of baptism. And he showed how the people who went through the Red Sea, who left Egypt, uh, went through in a kind of a figure of a baptism, didn't they? They went into the sea. They were, he says, baptized unto Moses. They all passed through the sea, verse 1, and all were baptized unto Moses. Now, they had to obey, didn't they? When they went into the water, they could have gone back to Pharaoh, and they could have gone back to being slaves, but by faith, as it were, many of them went in to the sea. Many of them just followed. Many of them really didn't even believe. But Moses believed, and others believed, and others walked by faith. It was a type. Baptism is a type uh, here, pictured of our baptism. Well, Peter tells us that Baptism is the answer of a good conscience. The Bible tells us, believe and be baptized. Mark 16, 16. A person is baptized because he is born again, because he has brought forth fruit worthy or meat in keeping with repentance. Remember what John the Baptist said to the religious leaders of his day who wanted to be baptized as he was baptizing by the Jordan. He said, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? He said, rather go and now bear fruit, worthy or meet in keeping with repentance. It's wrong to baptize somebody that doesn't have a changed heart. Baptism is a picture that we are dead to the old life, that we're now raised in newness of life to Christ. Paul tells us in Romans 6 that we are buried with him in baptism raised with him in newness of life. And then in chapter 10, he also spoke about the other ordinance. Remember the Lord's Supper. Verse 16, the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? And remember in that chapter, he was dealing with the issue of many had experienced even drinking from that spiritual rock in the desert, which was Christ. Remember how Moses struck the rock and many drank from it, but they didn't discern. They didn't discern God's miracles and God's mercy to an unworthy people. They saw the parting of the Red Sea. They all went into the sea. They all drank from the rock, but with many of them, God was not well pleased. And Hebrews chapter 3 tells us that many did not enter into the promised land because what they heard was not mixed with faith. They were not born again. They saw these things, but they didn't have faith. Now, faith comes as a result of the new birth. It's always antecedent. The new birth must always come first, and then faith follows. Now again, things ought to be done in the right way in the church. And this is what he's getting at. He's now going to continue in this chapter. He's leading up to the subject of the ordinance of the Lord's table. Again, I've emphasized in previous sermons, we do not use the word sacrament. The Latin word sacramento means something mysterious. The Lord's table and baptism are the two ordinances, the two commandments that God has given the church. And nothing mysterious takes place. 
at the Lord's table. Nothing mysterious takes place, furthermore, at one's baptism. You don't become a new person at your baptism. It shows that you, you are a new person. And the Lord's table, in the like manner, shows what Christ has done. Christ died. Remember, even as he said, as he took the bread himself, he said, this is my body. He was holding it with his own body. He was holding the bread. It was a, a symbol of his body. And this is my blood. Of course, there was still blood in his veins. His blood hadn't been shed. We totally reject, as we've said before, the doctrine of transubstantiation, which the Catholics teach. It doesn't become the blood of Christ. It doesn't become the body of Christ. But we are to take it in by faith, and we are to be men and women of faith, and we are to see spiritual things. And it's the same in this chapter when we come to chapter 11. We need to see certain spiritual truths. Now, chapter 11, it's sad to say, is a chapter that is hugely neglected today in the churches. Because some view these verses as divisive or problematic or difficult. Well, all the more reason to tackle them. We don't relegate truth because something is difficult. But rather we must come to the truth to find out what the truth says. And when we come to the truth, we must always look at the context. It's no use jumping straight into a chapter without considering the background, without considering the context. And that's why people who come week by week are those who make serious progress in the Word of God, rather than people who dabble with the teaching of the Word of God. They're in and out, they're in and out, and they never grow, they never develop in the teaching of God's Word. So as we come to this chapter, remember, first of all, Paul, what he's saying here now is by God. He has received, as we have been told, as I delivered them unto you, but also, verse 23, as he received from the Lord. He is delivered. He is the apostle. The apostle to the church. And this is God's word. And uh, we cannot compromise it one iota. Now, I want you to notice there, as we begin in verse 1 and 2, he exhorts the believers to follow him as he follows Christ. Be followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. This is so important, isn't it? That we don't just say things, but we have to be an example to other people. If we expect others, as Paul expects us, he obeyed God's word. And he practiced what we're going to look at here, because this is the will of God. We will see even the angels can be offended if things are not done right. Now, he begins, verse 2, Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things, and keep the ordinances as I have delivered them unto you. Now, he wants to tell us something here, first of all. As he begins this, and as he thanks them for their faithfulness in the areas where they are being faithful, he will tell us here something that is very important. Notice how he begins. He begins with a very clear statement. He says, but I would have you know. This is something he's underscoring here. This is something you must be very clear about as a Christian. When he says this, He's making a very strong assertion in verse 3. But I would have you know, if there's anything you need to know, it is this, that the head of every man is Christ. Now it's quite clear when he says the head of every man here, he is actually speaking about males. And the head of the woman is the man. Again, this is not a subject, or it's not the issue of superiority, but the subject is authority. 
Who has authority? Of course, we're all made in the image of God, aren't we? Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. God made them in his image. He made them male and female. We're all made in the image of God. But here the subject is not equality, but authority. Who has the authority? There is an order in creation. And this is the first thing we're going to think of here this evening. We've been thinking about the ordinances, and now he's moving to that, but he is now moving to the gathered church. What do we do in worship? How do we worship? And there's something we've got to fundamentally understand when we come to these verses. And the first thing in this passage, as I said, this passage that is almost universally ignored in the churches today, this subject of male headship, it is not, the first thing I want you to observe, this is not about culture, not about culture at all. Look at what he says. This is the, the premise, or this is really the foundation on which he is going to build his teaching. The foundation of God's teaching is this. In the beginning, he made them male and female, but who did he make first? And who did he make to have authority over the one? Although they are both equal, man and woman. But I would have you know, verse 3, that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. So just as the head of Christ is God, the head of every woman is man. This is not about, and he's going to talk about here, as we've read, he's going to talk about head covering, how men ought never to wear a hat, a cap, or anything in the church, and how women must cover their heads in worship, in praising, as we'll see this word prophesying means praising, praising God. We'll look at some scriptures tonight. This is what he's teaching. Again, he's not teaching about culture. You've got to come on the scene in your mind's eye here to Corinth. At Corinth, you had both Jews and Gentiles in the church. So this cannot be at all about culture. And by the way, in the old Jewish church, when they gathered together, there was the, the male court. And then there was the court of the, the woman. And then, of course, there was the court of the Gentiles. And those were separated. But now in Christ, the whole body is gathered together. There's a change now. And as the males and females gather together, there is to be a symbol, there is to be a sign concerning this authority. Again, this is not about, and people say, well, Paul here is talking about head coverings and head coverings, this is a, a cultural thing. That's what the modern church teaches today. This doesn't apply, they say, because they say this is about culture. The culture was different, and the times have changed now, so this doesn't apply. That's why many don't tackle this passage. But it's absolutely critical to understand, as I said, the context. But to understand further what goes on, we need to understand the principle behind what Paul says in verse 3. Look at verse 3. But I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ. And the head of the woman is the man. And the head of Christ is God. And then he's going to speak about a symbol that confirms or that shows in a public way that the man is the head of the woman and that she is under the authority of the man. So he says, in effect, notice, but I would have you know. In effect, he's saying, this is absolutely critical when he says, I would have you know. And it immediately brings our attention to a matter of principle that cannot be denied. Cannot be denied. The issue here, as I said, is not culture, but it is God-ordained headship, male headship. And I will seek through this passage 
to show you all the reasons why Paul says there ought to be a covering of the females in worship and how men ought to never cover their heads. The minute we walk in, we take our hats off men and we worship God because he says here, for a man to cover his head, it is a dishonor to his head who is Christ. Now we'll see here with the Lord's help these various things. First of all, you see here the head of the man is Christ, verse 3. But I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ, that's the first. And then secondly, the head of woman is the man. And then thirdly, the head of Christ is God the Father. Now I want you to notice when he says the head of Christ is God. Let's take that principle first of all. Is the Apostle Paul here, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is he saying that Christ is less than the Father? No, he's not saying that. And the reason is this. Christ, who is the eternal Logos, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. But there was a time when God was not manifest in the flesh, when he was not, as it were, the last Adam. He came to be the last Adam. He came, as it were, to be the Christ. He is always the eternal Son of God, but he became the Son of Man. There was a time when he never was the Son of Man, but he became the Son of Man. He took to himself bone of our bones, flesh of our flesh. He, if you just turn to Philippians chapter 2, notice in verse 6 there, we read concerning Christ, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. What does that mean? He never thought he was robbing God the Father to be equal with the Father. Because he is one, God is one, yet in three persons. It was not robbery to the Father for him to be equal with the Father. Notice, for who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself, he made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. He is co-equal with God, the Father. God is one, and yet, in three divine persons. We have that verse, don't we, in Hebrews 1, verse 8, where we read, if you notice there, Hebrews 1, 8, but unto the Son, he saith, that's the Father, thy throne, O God. The Father's speaking to the Son, and he says to the Son, thy throne, O God. The Father addresses the Son as God. Thy throne, says the Father, but unto the Son, he saith, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Remember the Lord Jesus said, I am. Before Abraham was, I am. He is eternally God. He also said, I am the Alpha and the Omega. He also said, I am the first and the last. And you can find that in the book of the Revelation. You can find that in Isaiah. Those titles can only be ascribed to God. He is very God. And yet God was manifest in the flesh. He humbled himself though. He is under God the Father here in the sense in terms of his office. When he came into the world, he was, we're told, made a little lower than the angels. He humbled himself. That's what we read in Philippians 2, didn't we? And uh, it says there in verse 6, who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. He came of his own volition, and he came to have three offices, prophet, priest, and king. He subjected himself, the word is hupotasso, he put himself under. 
He is not less than the Father, but co-equal, co-eternal, but it's an issue of authority. He's no less superior to the Father. It's not about superior, superiority, but it's about authority. It's about headship. And it's the same with regards to husbands and wives. Husbands and wives are equal in the sense that they are made in the image of God. But one has headship or authority over the other, a God-given authority. So that is very important. When we think of Christ, we think of his subordination. It was willful. It was volitional. It was indisputable. He is the head of the church. And here we read, and the head of Christ is God. And notice, and the head of every man, he says, secondly, is Christ. The head of every man is Christ. Every man, every male, is directly under Christ. And as it were, to have authority. Again, it's not that we are superior to women. It's just a matter of authority. And a man is under divine authority to be an example and to lead with authority comes responsibility, doesn't it? You've heard that. Even, even the world knows that. With authority comes responsibility. And so the husband is not some sort of little dictator in his own home, but he has a real responsibility. And great charge is laid upon him. He is not to be a, sort of a megalomaniac or a dictator barking like a dog get this and get that for me, do this and do that for me. No, the husband is to love his wife as Christ loved the church, to have a, a tender love. And then thirdly, notice in the same vein, he says the head of the woman is the man. And the verse 3 there. And just as Christ is subject to the Father, but not less, it's the same with husbands and wives. The woman, she's not less than the husband. She's made in the image of God. She's not of less dignity or value, but she is under real God-given authority. The authority of her husband. Genesis 1.27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. He made Adam first, and he brought Eve, did he not, to Adam. Eve was taken out of Adam, and so on. I hope this is clear. It's not about superiority, but it's about a God-given authority. And there's a difference in the roles in the home, husbands and wives. A husband is to lead and to be a good example and he is given a proper authority, but how much responsibility and onus is laid on him for all that God has given him. Now, if you notice, there are several reasons in the word of God why God ordained male headship. And it's important we lay the, the foundation here before we get to this teaching about head covering this evening. If you just turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 2. And the first reason for this, as I already said it, is the order of creation, who was made first. Paul says in 1 Timothy 2, 7, whereunto I am ordained a preacher, an apostle, I speak the truth in Christ, and lie not, a teacher of the Gentiles, in faith and verity. And he says, I will therefore that men pray everywhere lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. In like manner also women adorn themselves. Now, notice what he says here. need to just cover this at the moment. It's quite clear, Paul says here, first of all, that men and not women are to pray everywhere. Do you see the difference here? See what he says? 
I will that men pray everywhere. He doesn't say men and women pray everywhere, but he says, I will that men pray everywhere. Now, in a sense, it's true to say that as we're gathered here tonight, and as we come to the prayer meeting, and even as I'm praying and leading in prayer in the service, I am praying, but so is everybody else. You're silent, aren't you? When I'm praying, you're praying with me. I'm leading in prayer, and your heart is moved in prayer. And it's the same for the woman. Although they don't pray audibly, because Paul will go on to say that women let them be in silence, I will have them not speak in the church. Women do pray in our churches, but just silently. It's not as if they don't pray. And by the way, prayers are for who? They're for God. Ultimately, aren't they? Who are we praying to? We're not praying to men. We're not praying to be heard of men. We're not like the Pharisees, just praying to be heard of men. And so when I'm praying, you are praying with me, although you're praying silently in your hearts, men and women. But it is the men, as you see there, who are to pray everywhere. He doesn't say, I want men and women to pray everywhere. But he said, I would that men pray. And some men don't pray audibly, but they pray in their hearts. And God hears those prayers. And then he goes on to say, look at verse 12, But I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. And elsewhere he says that they should not speak. For Adam, notice, was first formed, then Eve. So first of all here, on the basis of creation, this is why there is this leadership. And the wife is to learn from her own husband. In verse 11, he says, Let the woman learn in silence with all subjection, but I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority, but to learn in silence. And then elsewhere he will say, if a woman has a question, let her go home and ask her husband. Why? So that she doesn't usurp her husband's authority in front of anybody else in the church. That would be a disgrace to her husband. That would be to usurp the husband's authority. And yet how many times have we seen that? It's not good. Is it? She ought to go home and ask her own husband. And so that's Paul's argument on the first basis. So he argues from uh, the issue of creation. And he says in 1 Corinthians 14, 35, And if they will learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home. For it is a shame for women to speak in the church, not even in the, in the service. She shouldn't be whispering in his ear. What's the pastor saying? It should be done at home. Because that can cause a disturbance, can't it? People whispering, making a noise, anything. And we have to be very careful, don't we? The way we close the doors, the way we try not to distract other people in the service. The second reason for headship is the order of transgression. Notice who transgressed first. Well, it was Eve. First Timothy 2.12 For I suffer not a woman to teach, and so on. And then he says, For Adam was first formed, then Eve. Verse 13 of First Timothy 2. And then he says in verse 14, And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. She was deceived. Adam took. He was not deceived. He knew what he was doing was wrong. It doesn't excuse Adam. But she is the weaker vessel in the sense is that she was easily overcome. And that's another reason. And Peter will talk about the woman being the weaker vessel. It's not that she's... It's not simply meaning physical sense, but men can be more assertive. And uh, Peter speaks about the woman being the weaker vessel. Women can be more fragile, can't they? More emotional. And that's not to put women down. They have many strengths that men don't have. But that's true, isn't it? Peter says in 1, Timothy 3, uh, 1 Peter 3, 
He says in verse 7, Likewise ye husbands dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel. 1 Peter 3, 6. The weaker vessel, he says. Men, as I said, are typically more assertive, more forceful. It's just in their nature, isn't it? Men tend to be stronger leaders. It's just their, their makeup. Men tend to see things just black and white. And sometimes that can be a negative thing, can't it, as well? Well, Adam was meant to be that guardian protector. Another reason that Paul gives this here by the Spirit is that there is a difference, as I have already intimated, in terms of the makeup of the persons. 1 Peter 3, 7, again, giving honor to the wife as unto the weaker vessel. Now, some women are very offended at that, particularly the feminists. And I find that the feminists are the least feminist people. If ever there was an oxymoron, you have it. They want to be the males, not feminists, not gentle. And you find that those are the most miserable people. You know, we find our calling in life when we are called and to live the way God wants us to live. And, and we, we live it out in our life. Women are different. Women ought to be dainty, as it were, gentle. Men tend to be, as I said, thicker skinned and even sometimes sadly insensitive. We would admit that, wouldn't we? Not as sensitive as we ought to be. But nonetheless, there's a, a complementary effect, should we say, in the marriage. There ought to be. You see it in the animal kingdom as well, don't you? It's, it's very evident. I think even the unsaved people see it in this world. Even the heathen recognize this. Well, this all flies in the face, doesn't it, of the feminist movement today, ranting on about equality. This is not really about equality. This is about a God-given authority and the right way. Another reason for this headship is that God says it's essential for submission. It's essential. How are you going to submit if you don't see somebody as your head? Why would you? You've got to see it because God has said it and you've got to obey. Colossians 3 verse 18, wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as it is fit in the Lord. In other words, it's becoming. It's very unbecoming for a woman not to submit. Now, of course, if the husband asks you to submit to something that is clearly sinful, that's wrong. Isn't it? But if it's a matter of indifference, then you must submit. Paul says in Ephesians 5.22, Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. What does he mean? He says, because this is what God has commanded. And do it for the sake of Christ. Again, it does not mean that a woman is under a tyrant. But under one who loves Christ and who has the very best intention for her. And she has to believe that. And if he stumbles, you know, Paul doesn't say, wives, you do this if you feel like it. If he's a good husband, no, he doesn't say that. He says you must do this. In Titus 2, 3, we have these words, the aged woman likewise that they be in behavior as becometh holiness, not false accusers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they may teach the young woman to be sober. That's not teach them in a Bible uh, study lesson. There's no such thing as a woman's Bible study lesson in all of the New Testament. But it's to teach by example how to cook, how to care for the children, wash them, keep the house clean, 
It says to be chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands. That the word of God be not blasphemed. That's the whole reason behind it. Because, ladies, you can blaspheme the name of God by not doing this. When the world sees you do this, it's honoring to God. Well, these things are important. So it's important that we see here why Paul is leading to this headship and then this symbol for headship, which is the head covering. Now, Ephesians 5.33 says, Let every one of you in particular so love his wife, even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. Paul doesn't say there, Now, ladies, there's an exception for this. No, no. You must do it. And likewise for the husband. There's no exception where you don't love your wife. And to love her, Paul says, by the washing of the word. Just as Christ loved the church, we are to love our wives by the washing of the word, by the reading of the word of God every day, by prayer and by a godly life and by caring for her spiritually. Men, this is a great and high calling. And it's, by the way, irrespective of the other person's shortcomings, isn't it? If they fail to do this, it's still a duty. Love is not a feeling. Love is a duty. Biblical love. Now, we come to these reasons here why the Apostle Paul says this sign, this symbol must be worn in the church when it gathers. Verse 4, every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonoreth his head. Do you notice that? Men, when you come into the house of God, hats off. Why? He says, you dishonor your head, who is Christ. If the king came in here, what would we do? I'm talking about the king of England. If we had a hat, we'd take it off, wouldn't we? You see it in the old days, perhaps you've seen in some of the old documentary films, when some regent comes, man takes his hat off and bows to the king. It's the same. We're in the presence of Christ, and we're to honor him. The head of every man is Christ. That's the reason. I mean, we even know it in our culture. It's rude, isn't it? You go into somebody's house and you keep your hat on. That's, that's rude. Or your coat, you take it off. Well, there are things even in our society that we do. But here, very clear, this is not a cultural thing. This is about Christ being the head of every Christian, every male in particular. And in the same way, he says, let the wife see that she reverence her husband. And he says, and the head of the woman is the man. And this is what he's going to get at here. The head of every man is Christ. Now the head of the woman is the man. And in like manner, the woman are not to cover, are to cover their heads. We've touched on this about praying. It says whether she prayeth or prophesieth. We're going to see with regards to this word prophesying in a minute, it means praising. Now, some, there might be some woman that say, well, can't woman pray anywhere? And they might say, well, what about Hannah? When she was before Elkanah, well, you study that passage, 1 Samuel 1.13, it says, Hannah, she spake in her heart, but nothing came out of her mouth. Her lips moved. There was no voice. And so Elkanah thought, and certainly Eli thought, that she was drunk. There are no women praying in the Bible audibly. Certainly not in a prayer meeting or anything like that. And it says here, every man praying or prophesying. And we'll think in just a moment here about prophesying. If you turn with me to Proverbs 31. 
And if you know all about Proverbs 31, it's about the praise of the godly woman, isn't it? You know, and, and it's, you notice the words of King Lemuel, the prophecy that his mother taught him. The prophecy. Now, there's nothing about prophecy in Proverbs 31. There's nothing about the future. The word there, prophecy, means to praise. Do you see that in the title, the words of King Lemuel? The prophecy that his mother taught him. So here, this word Prophecy can mean praise, in the praise and the worship. She, the lady, must keep her hat on. She is praising God, but she must remember that the, her head is the husband. Although Christ is over both, she is under direct authority of her husband. Do you see that? Also in First Chronicles 25, we read how David and the captains of the host separated to the service of the sons of Asaph, and of Heman, and of Jeduthun, who should prophesy with harps, with psalteries, and with cymbals. The word there, again, prophecy, is to praise. And so this is what Paul is saying. He's not saying here everybody is prophesying, as in telling the future. But this word can be used to describe praise, or to exhort, or to exalt should we say? So when you read there Proverbs 31, it's not prophecy, but it's the praise of the godly woman. And Paul here is talking about people engaged in public worship. Men, hats off. Ladies, hats on. Head covering. Because you're showing the right understanding of the created order and God's will. So first of all here we've seen every man praying or prophesying having his head covered dishonors his head. We understand that, men. We would dishonor Christ, wouldn't we? Christ has put us in a position. Now, it says here every man. It doesn't say every husband. It says all males. It's interesting also all the, the modern translations when it comes to to woman, and, and the modern translations like the ESV and IV are all wrong because it, it speaks of wives. But here it, it speaks of the woman, the female. And so they restrict it to merely women, but not all girls. And so you're not really teaching a good thing, are you? This concerns all men, all women, whether young or old. And what is really interesting is here that Paul, if you understand the Jewish culture, Paul is actually changing things. As I said, when the Jews gathered together in the Old Testament, there was the court of the Gentiles, there was the court of the men, and there was the court of the women. They were all separate, but now all are together. But the men actually wore uh, kippahs or, yam or yamakas, it's called, they would wear those hats, but not now. Why? Because Christ has come. So we must totally and wholly reject this idea that it's a cultural thing, because as I said, there are Jews and Gentiles here in the church. It's not about culture. And we're going to move to the angels in a moment, and the angels are outside of time. I mean, the angels are the ones that can be offended if we offend Christ. That's the lesson, isn't it? But all the new evangelicals today will say this is a matter of culture. But Paul is not dealing with this. And you will find that a lot of those women that won't submit to this, they suffer in other areas of their life and in their dress. Modesty is another thing. You find these two go hand in hand. Now, let us move on. The second reason why women must cover their heads here is they dishonor their husbands. Verse 5, but every woman, and again as I said, unlike the ESV or the NIV or 
all the others who limit the text, and they say, wife, which is wrong, it's, but every woman that prayeth or prophesieth with her head uncovered dishonors her head. Who's her head? The husband. That should be very clear for us by now. He says, for that even as one, as if she were shaven, she may as well have a crew cut. She may as well take a razor blade and shave all of her head. And that's a shame. That would be a shame, isn't it? She may as well be a man if she uncovers her head. Because that's what she's saying. I have authority. It's interesting, isn't it? Look at the age in which we live. You see it now. These rather man-like haircuts. A woman dressing like men. It's unbecoming, isn't it? Well, it's the day and the age in which we live, friends. It is a sad day. And the church does not move with the time, does not move with the culture. Now, have a look at verse 6. For if the woman be not covered, let her also be shorn. But if it be a shame for a woman to be shorn, shaven, let her be covered. What is he saying there? Well, if a, if a woman does have a condition, maybe even she can't grow her hair, let her be covered. It's not a shame. Some women sadly suffer. They may have cancer or something like that. And that's not a shame. Rather, let her be covered. She's showing proper honor for us. She's got nothing to be ashamed about. There's some things we have no control over, surely. This is what he's saying. Thirdly, another reason why the woman should be covered is that she takes the image, notice verse 7, of the glory of man away. Look at verse 7. For a man indeed ought not to cover his head. Why? Why, Paul? For as much because as he is the image and glory of God. That's why a man ought not to cover his head. Men, do you realize you and I are made in the image of God and we are made to glorify God? God has given us a responsibility to lead and to honor our wives and to be strong for them. But the woman is the glory of man. The woman is the glory of man. She's not to glorify herself, but she's... Who is she? She's... When God brought Eve to Adam, what did he bring? He brought a... She was called a help meet. Adam is not her help meet. But she is his help meet. In other words, to help him do what God has called him to do. Do you see the authority there? And man is to reflect the glory of God. God who directs and gives order and governance. And he is to direct and have order in the family. Family should be directed by the man. And if a woman's got a problem with that, she should never have got married. Never. This whole business of separate bank accounts is a nonsense. But the woman is the glory of man. Her function is to be a helpmeet to him. And the woman is to help reflect that the man is to have the glory in this relationship, not to be glorified, but himself to reflect God, God who is in control. He loves her. He's tender with her. And again, he's not a tyrant. Look at verse 8. For the man is not of the woman. Notice, but the woman of the man. It's interesting there, isn't it? We often reverse the roles almost today. 
Remember this, ladies. The man is not of the woman. Where did the woman come from? The man. Culture today says the man comes from the woman. But that's not what the Word of God says. Rather turns things on its head, doesn't it? The Lord is remarking on this here, and it's so important that we take it to heart. Neither was the man created for the woman. Verse 9, but the woman for the man. Again, God is not being sexist. God is not degrading woman. He's simply stating the facts. This is my design for a happy family, for a happy union. But we're told, aren't we, in Genesis, after the fall, Thy desire shall be for thy husband. It's going to be this constant conflict. And men will fail to, to stand up to their responsibilities. Men are just as much to blame. The woman wanting to usurp the power, the man relinquishing his power, not taking up his responsibility, not being a godly leader in the home. Fourthly, Paul, he comes back to another reason why woman should have a head covering. Now notice what he says. For this cause, verse 10, ought the woman to have power on her head because of the angels. You say, well, what do the angels have to do with a head covering? They observe our worship right now. We are told that they are ministering spirits of them who are the heirs of eternal life. They observe us. We can offend them. He says, because of the angel. Psalm 34, verse 7. The angel of the Lord encampeth round about them that fear him. 1 Corinthians 4, 9, we read. We are made a spectacle unto the world and to angels. They observe everything. And you know, we can offend God as well as the angels. I mean, the angels care how we treat our spouses. What we view of rightful headship and honor. If this were about culture or tradition, why would the angels be offended? Are they going to be offended by next year's fashion? I don't think it has to do with any fashion. He's told us already this has to do with headship because Christ, Christ is head of the man and the man is the head of the woman. That's simple, plain teaching of the text. Another reason is not superiority, fifthly, but the will of God. Look at verse 11. Nevertheless, neither is the man without the woman, neither the woman without the man in the Lord. In other words, Look at verse 11. Both are important. He's saying neither is the man without the woman. He is been given this wife and she compliments him and he compliments her. It's a beautiful union, isn't it? Nevertheless, neither is the man without the woman, neither the woman without the man in the Lord. We are nothing, ultimately, without the Lord who made us all. And we're made for him. And it's God's will. Can we just leave it at that? We should do. It's God's will. And he is wiser than us. And he knows what is right. And verse 12, For as the woman is of the man, even so is the man also the woman, but all things are of God. All things are of God. This is the way God designed it, is really what he's saying. Now, sixthly, Paul, what he does now in verse 13, if you look at verse 13, judge in yourselves, is it comely that a woman pray unto God uncovered? He appeals on the basis of, is it comely? Is it appropriate? He says, Think in your own mind. What is the most appropriate thing? 
If this is what God has designed, is this not appropriate? And especially, let me say, friends, in a day when feminism is pushing itself to every quarter and even now finding itself in the church, would you believe it? Well, you've got women who want to stand up and read the scriptures and the Bible says, be silent, woman. Well, you've got women who want to, to pray, to be heard. I've said prayers are for God and prayers are for God. And we, when I pray, we all pray. But we pray silently. But he said, I would men that pray everywhere, not women. And he says here, is it not comely? He said, judge yourself. You in your own mind, can't you see it? If you can't see it, man, there's something wrong with you. That's what he's saying. You've got the problem. Judge yourself. This is his judgment. It's comely. It's appropriate. He doesn't say, by the way, this is the culture today. In AD 56. And by the way, the culture is going to be different. And it'll be uncomely then. The word of God is abiding and unchanging, my friend. I think you know the answer to all of this, don't you? Something else. Paul then, lastly, argues from nature. And he addresses you and I, men. Look what he says. Doth not even nature itself teach you, verse 14, that if a man have long hair, it is a shame unto him. If a man hath long hair, it is a shame unto him. I understand that. And by the way, men, boldness ever not to be ashamed. But it's a shame if a man hath long hair. Think of the youth that said to Elisha, Go up, thou bald head, go up, thou bald head. And the judgment of God came down. It's no shame in having no hair, but it's a shame, men. You try to look like a woman. How effeminate it looks. My, I saw a preacher not so long ago in a reformed church. Long hair. I wonder if he's ever read this passage. Reading from the authorized version. Here in England. A well-known church. In our circles. Long hair. Accepted. He should never have been allowed to enter that pulpit. Never. He says it's a shame. But if a woman have long hair. It is a glory to her, for her hair is given for a covering. Now it says, if a woman have long hair. Some women can't. They try as best as they can. But he says if they do, it's a glory to her. She ought not to be ashamed of it. Well, all of these reasonings, Paul says... Nature, the design of God, and so on. Now notice what he says in verse 16. But if any man seem to be contentious, he says, if, in effect, you disagree with me, or you're going to contend with what I'm saying. And all these reasonings that I've given you, men and women, he says, we have no such custom. There's no other practice, neither the churches of God. In all the churches, we've got no custom. You disagree with this, you disagree with nature, you disagree with God. But what have we got today? My friends, probably one of the most contentious ages we live in, contending against the word of God. Never seen it so much. Some years ago, 
I remember a number of churches who practice head covering as we do, the ladies, and some well-known church, the pastor, well-known pastor, came and preached a totally different position to what I preached. And I saw many churches and pastors' wives take their head coverings off, never wear them again. And in my observation, my humble observation, I have seen a decline in those churches in many areas. Modesty, irreverence. You see, if we get the little things right, like it's not a little thing really, is it? When you stop and think about it. But if we get these things right, it sets the climate, doesn't it? For the church, it sets the atmosphere. It sets the tone right. It's going to lead to the table next. But you see, you don't come to the table. You don't come to these ordinances doing your own thing. He says, we have no such custom in any of the churches. If a man is contentious about this, be silent. He will tell us here there must needs be in this very chapter that there be schisms, that there be contentions, that those who are approved of God may be made manifest. May God help us. We can't compromise God's word because it will change the whole of the worship of the church, won't it? We must honor God. Sometimes we don't understand, but with a little bit of careful study, praying for God's help, and not trying to do as so many churches today, how does this apply to our cultural age and the context? It's nothing to do with that. God's word is timeless. And it's unchanging. And it's never to be tampered with. If we add anything to this book, my friends, we will suffer. Let us not add. Let us receive it and obey it. Amen.